0: Romans chapter 8 is our reading this morning. Romans chapter 8 at verse 1. Let's hear the word of God. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. This is the word of the Lord. What was Jesus doing before he became Jesus? That's the question that we've been asking uh, the last uh, couple of weeks. This is the third week of a study on the eternal son in our first study we looked at the son's eternity we saw that jesus was living out his name before he came and took his name his name is yahweh saves or the lord saves that's what the name jesus means it's actually a divine name the lord our savior he was doing that he was reigning as the lord enjoying the timeless eternity of the divine life in which there is no past, present, or future. Therefore, we can say about this Jesus that there was no time when he was not. No time when he came to exist. No time at which he as the word of God can be said to do or to become anything. But we perhaps can say with Oliver Crisp... I nearly said Oliver Twist. Oliver Crisp, it's unfortunate. uh, That there was a particular moment in time... When Christ's human nature began to exist. His divine nature had no beginning... But there was a beginning to his human nature. The divine nature, of course... we we learned is never located anywhere. You cannot locate the divine nature in any particular space. Uh, Fulfilling the saying, the finite cannot contain the infinite. So the universe doesn't contain God. We looked at infinity, we started by looking at that, the the whole series, you can begin there if you want to to get the the background. So we begin by by saying this, the finite cannot contain the infinite. Some of us may imagine that the human nature of Jesus is somehow interpenetrated by divinity. The way, for, for example, when we read in the Gospels of human beings being infested or uh, possessed by an evil spirit that uses a human life as a kind of uh, 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 an entity it can use through which it can, it can uh, demonstrate its evil Christ's human nature is not interpenetrated in that way by divinity no, nor is it kind of taken up some glue attached to divinity in an external way This would be wrong because nothing can be subtracted from God. Nothing can be added to the the, the substance and essence of God. Now, when we talk about Christ taking on human nature, we're talking about Christ as the person of the Son of God, who he is. The one who assumes this particular human nature at the moment of incarnation is the eternal Son of God. That human nature doesn't contain Him, doesn't limit Him, doesn't tell us all there is to know about Him. So the old rubric that that we need to keep reminding ourselves of is that Christ is eternally, eternally begotten or generated by the Father according to His divine nature. We can't imagine how that happens, that eternally God is giving everything he is, all the fullness of his divinity. The father is giving it to the son eternally. There never was a time when there wasn't a father or a son. There was no beginning to that relationship. But we can say that his human nature began when it was conceived and then born of the virgin. And that these two natures, the nature of God and this human nature, belong to the Son without any confusion or admixture or, or bleeding into each other. They're quite distinct. We have to make that clear distinction. The Council of Chalcedon in 451 makes this very clear. Inconfusedly, unchangeably, indivisibly, inseparably. The distinction of natures being by no means taken away by the unity, but rather the property of each nature being preserved and concurring in one person, in one subsistence, not, not parted or divided into two persons, but one and the same Son and only begotten. God the Word the Lord Jesus Christ. So what we're saying is the eternal son then assumes a temporal time-based human nature. And just as it's important for us to think about his divine nature, we are also to think about that human nature that he has. His eternal nature as God is important for us to recognize, but we also need to know him as this unique man that he is. Now, this is an important thing for every one of you, whether you're a Christian or not. Because supposing you're not a Christian, every human being has a unique relationship already with Jesus Christ. What do I mean by that? I mean exactly what it says in Colossians chapter 1. All things were created through him and for him. That means you were created through him and for him. You and all your friends, and everyone on this planet, everyone who has ever existed, 107 billion people that have existed before we existed on this planet. Jesus is not merely one of us, though he is that, but he is our creator. So we're all related to him in that sense, and believers in particular, because we were chosen in Christ from before the foundation of the world, before God made the universe. We were already chosen in him, created in him, in the purpose of God. And all of our purpose and living and existence lies in him. Adam Johnson puts it like this in the Cambridge Companion to Christian Doctrine. He says this, he is the representative, the archetype, the one in whom creation's fate hangs in the balance. Jesus is is the faithful Israel, the one in whom Israel accomplishes the exodus from Egypt and crosses the river Jordan. He is the giver and the keeper and fulfiller of the law on Sinai. He is the one who spoke by and fulfills the words of the prophets throughout the Old Testament. He is the one who fed and nourished Israel in the desert He has always been there for his people. But today I want to ask the question, what kind of man then is the man, Christ Jesus? This man who is the one mediator between God and man. Uh, Thomas White comments, the human nature of Christ is more humane and perfect because it is the nature of God but it is also that of a genuinely historical human being. Likewise, the existence of the sun-made man does not serve to enslave or limit the gradual development of his humanity through time, but causes it to flourish in an appropriate and essentially normal human way. In other words, the sun takes our nature He takes our nature as an infant. He is born. He grows. He lives a truly human life of obedience to the Father. Now we need to make that uh, clear that Jesus' obedience belongs to his incarnate life. It's his human obedience. Uh, Away with this nonsense that there is Obedience within the Godhead. You, you, you may know that in the 20th century, starting with Karl Barth, picked up by evangelicals like Bruce Ware and Wayne Grudem and John Piper and, and others. The, these men contended that within the Godhead, there are eternal relations of monarchy and servant of Uh, subordination and of authority within the very nature of God. Now that's a very problematic view to take. And it's a problematic view to take primarily because of the nature of God. It actually breaks the nature of God as we have confessed it already today in the Creed. There is only one God the Holy Trinity with one will, one authority, one majesty. You, you see the one will at play in the garden of Eden is Jesus in his human nature faces the cross. And he says, not my will, but thine be done, thine be done. He puts his human willing and he lays it as a human before the father To achieve the one will of God, which is his will also eternally. One will, one authority. Jesus is all authority in heaven and earth. One majesty. Who did Isaiah see in the temple when he saw the majesty of God? He saw the Father. He saw the Holy Spirit. He saw the Son. Isaiah spoke of Jesus' glory, we read in John 12. Now, if we start to introduce something like this into the nature of God... Which has happened in evangelical churches, I'm afraid, right across the board in the 20th century. If you do this, here's what you come up with. You're probably influenced by the philosophy of Kant rather than Plato. You're probably influenced by what Kant and other uh, Enlightenment, post-Enlightenment philosophers introduced into thinking you've done away with any view of metaphysics and you've introduced into, into Christian thought categories of personality and that kind of thing. And so therefore, this is what you come up with. You come up with three centers of consciousness when we talk about the Holy Trinity. Three centers of Consciousness that are distinct Three wills Three quiddities Three gods in fact Although you will not allow yourself If you have an evangelical to, to admit that This was the issue That came to the surface In 2016 And, uh, and uh, been a massive pushback Against this error In evangelical circles I'm glad to say and it's even worse when you consider why this came to be in the first place. This whole idea of, of uh, God having internal and eternal relations of authority and submission was contrived, it was contrived to support a view of male-female husband-wife relationships and to say that relationships which for a while and with particular tasks in view may be distinguished between men and women, husbands and wives, here, that submission and subordination was going to last for eternity. That was the argument. And that was heresy. That was an error of the first magnitude Manipulating the view of God to serve an extreme, an extreme brand of complementarianism, which is not complementarianism at all, was one of the greatest uh, burdens to place upon the Christian church at the end of the 20th century. We have to say when we look at Jesus here, only at the incarnation does his obedience begin. Why? Why? He's born of a woman. He's made under the law. By becoming human, you are placed under the law of God. That's what it says in Galatians 4, in Philippians 2. He takes the form of a servant when he becomes human. He humbles himself and becomes obedient by becoming human. In Hebrews... It's when he comes into the world, we're told in Hebrews 10, that he says, Behold, I come, that is, come into the world, to do your will, O God. He takes on our humanity that he might learn obedience, Hebrews 5, through the things that he suffered. Those are all the things we're told about Jesus in relation to his coming into the world. It was the incarnation that led to his obedience. Not only the incarnation, but the theology of salvation led to his obedience. In Romans, we're told that he came into the world as the second and last Adam. That is, a representative human being who, unlike Adam the first, actually obeys and fulfills all righteousness. He comes into the world as the true Israel. You know that in the Old Testament, There's Adam, and then there's Israel. Adam has a paradise, Eden. Israel is promised a paradise, Canaan. Adam disobeys God. Israel disobeys God. Both of them lose their paradise. Jesus comes as a true Israel, who obeys where Israel manifestly failed. He came with authority. He came with the authority of God. I have authority to lay down my life. I have authority to take it up again. This commandment I received from my Father. And that's a good verse to just pause on for a moment. Basil of Caesarea comments Jesus is clarifying that he has the same will as his Father because the Father has timelessly given the divine will to the Son. He gives him all that he is as God to the Son eternally. Augustine says that the commandment isn't a divine directive. Rather, it's the Father eternally giving his entire substance to the Son, which includes the divine will and authority. Cyril reminds us not to be surprised when the Son speaks to us in human words about divine Mysteries. Throughout his life Jesus knows who he is. And what he must do. Contrast this with a modern writer. N.T. Wright. uh, And his assertion that. While Jesus quote. Believed himself. Called to do and to be the things. Which only Israel's God. Could do or be. Jesus operated quote. With the knowledge that he could be making a terrible lunatic mistake. Well, I'm afraid N.T. Wright has made a terrible lunatic mistake in even asserting and positing that idea. Scripture's witness is that from the earliest days, Jesus knew exactly why he was here, that he was about his father's business, we find very early on in his life. We're reminded we we remind ourselves that he is the divine eternal son that who possesses this human existence. And as a human being, we're reminded that he possesses the Holy Spirit of God without measure, that is, without limits. He receives from the Holy Spirit infused knowledge. By the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit, he understood his understanding As uh, Stephen uh, Duby puts it, his understanding was never clouded by the sinful habits of mind and will against which even the born-again sinner has to fight throughout his life. As the Son of God in his human nature, he knew by the illumination of the Holy Spirit who and what he was. That's why his faith never wavered. That's why he repeatedly told his disciples that he had to go up to Jerusalem. He had to be crucified, dead, buried, and rise again. He never flinched from the mission that he'd been given. When the time came, he set his face steadfastly to go to Jerusalem. Where he would die and glorify his father by his death. Now I ask the question... How was he able to do this? It's because he was preserved by the Spirit's gracious infusion of habitual knowledge and faith and by the Holy Spirit's constant guidance and help. Now, how holy was Jesus? Well, we know that he was holy from his conception. The angel told his mother, the Holy Spirit shall come upon you, the power of the highest shall overshadow you, reminiscent of Genesis 1 and the Holy Spirit's part in the creation of the universe. So in the creation of this child in the womb of Mary, similar similar in the creative power involved. And the, whole, the angel goes on to say this, so That Holy One that will be born of you shall be called the Son of God. We know that he's holy because he's the Anointed One, the Messiah. On whom Isaiah the prophet said, the Holy Spirit would rest on him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. After his anointing by the Spirit in his baptism, he is immediately led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. It's there that he enters, if you like, into our human experience. As Hebrews 2 says, he had to be made like his siblings in every respect because he himself has suffered being tempted. He is able to help those who are tempted. Benedict puts it like this, at the heart of all temptations is the act of pushing God aside because we perceive him to be secondary To all the apparently more urgent matters that fill our lives. You think about it. The way sin works in you. The way sin works in me. It's to push God to the back of my mind. To push him out of my thoughts. To be focused on the things that I want or need or that please me. Now in that desert, Jesus, the last Adam, the true Israel faces down the devil who had won those many centuries before. In the first test, he faced the insistence of the devil that God must prove his existence to us. Take the stones and turn them into bread. He's asking for Jesus to prove that he's the son of God by doing a divine thing on tap in order to prove who he is. Now frequently we hear this. If God's there, why doesn't he do something? If God's there, why doesn't he show himself? If God's there, why, why can't he demonstrate his power? Why doesn't he feed the hungry? Why doesn't he stop the war? Why doesn't he do this, that, or the other thing? We want God to prove himself to us. The second test. Satan takes the Bible. He twists the Bible. He tries to get Jesus to accept a lie. The devil still does that. He's doing it this morning in pulpits all over America. He is encouraging the lie. Maybe a big lie or a small lie. But it's a lie nonetheless. I mean, supposing in a pulpit in America today, somebody is teaching what I just described in terms of authority submission as being a part of the internal life of God. That is a lie that's being perpetrated to a congregation somewhere in America today. And there are bigger lies, more lies. Paul calls them the doctrines of demons. The third test. Jesus has offered an alternative way to achieving the kingdom of God. What was Jesus' way of achieving the kingdom of God? It was the way of the cross. When Jesus is speaking to his church, he says to his church, Church, this is the way the kingdom of God comes. The way of the cross. The whole message of Revelation is that the church is on the way to the cross. The church can be left dying in the street. That's Jesus' way. Every other way of establishing the kingdom of God, resorting to politics, resorting to power manipulation, trying to get some other way to establish the kingdom of God is not Jesus' way. It's part of the temptation of the church. That came to Jesus first. The way to build the kingdom. Is to die. To self. And perhaps even to life. Well Jesus then. Demonstrates. His power over sin. By resisting the devil. He is born sinless. And is born impeccable. Because only somebody without sin can be the savior. In Hebrews chapter four, we have a high priest, which was tempted at all points as we are, yet without sin. Two Corinthians five twenty one, he knew no sin. First Peter two, he did no sin; neither was guile found in his mouth. 1 John chapter 3. In him is no sin. Get that. Without sin. Knew no sin. Did no sin. In him is no sin. Peter argues that the Passover lamb that was taken and sacrificed within the Jewish custom of the Passover had to be checked and tested to see if it was impeccable. There were no defects in it. Nothing wrong with it. And Jesus Christ is the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. He had to be without blemish, without spot, without defect, qualified to be our Savior. Now, here's what we know about human beings and sin we know that our first parents, the first human beings, were able not to sin. Able not to sin. Posse non peccari. After the fall, human beings were not able not to sin. In the state of glory, those that we know who are already in the glory with Christ, they are not able to sin. Not able to sin. And with fully renewed hearts, and on the basis of the merit of Jesus Christ alone, we will be perfected in holiness when we go to glory. But we will remain fully human. So, what about Jesus? Well, it is a confession of Scripture and the church that, as the perfect human being, Jesus was not merely without sin. He was impeccable. He was not able to sin. Now in the 20th century, this has been contested by people as diverse as Karl Barth and T.F. Torrance and Tom Schreiner. Uh, T.F. Torrance argued while Christ was without sin, he assumed our fallen human existence, our fallen flesh under the dominion of sin. All of these men, by the way, would maintain that Jesus actually didn't do any sin, but that it was possible for him to sin. And the reason why all this happened in the 19th century is that the whole idea is a novel one that arises in the 19th century because of a shift away from metaphysics and the idea of a divine substance and a divine nature in favor of no- novel concepts such as that of personality or self-consciousness. That's following Immanuel Kant. Uh, I, I want to say this, this: only a nutcase would follow Immanuel Kant in terms of understanding Christianity. You can apply that wherever it's being used today. Immanuel Kant, uh, post-enlightenment, Unbelieving uh, and the arguments that he uses, the, 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 the processes that he, that he uses, they are not Christian processes. Christians actually, from the very earliest days, including the New Testament, utilized Plato and Aristotle. So if the Bible gives the nod to any philosophers to learn from, those are the boys, those are the ones. Now, one of the arguments for taking a fallen nature is is an ancient phrase taken from Gregory Nazianzus. Gregory said this, the unassumed is the unhealed. And the argument, these people, they they take that phrase of uh, Gregory's and they say, well, unless Jesus took on a a fallen human nature like ours, then he can't save us. What they do, of course, is they take that phrase of Gregory's out of, Context. He's not talking about human nature or about sin. Gregory is actually responding to a a heretic called Apollinarius who was arguing that the human Christ was human in every regard except he did not possess a human mind. And Gregory reacted to that by saying, The unassumed is the unhealed. Another argument for Jesus taking a fallen human nature. It's found in Romans 8. That's why we read it this morning. And you know I'd get there eventually. Uh, Romans 8. Where it says this. Sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh. It's argued. That here Jesus is taking on sinful flesh. That he is becoming one of us in in this respect as well. Not only human. But fallen human he may never actually put it into practice but the potentiality is there in him that's the the argument that's made and it's made by Bart and Schreiner and Wright and other evangelicals today that Jesus has to have a fallen human nature like us if he is to identify with us well I want you to look at this passage for a moment And see what the passage tells you about fallen human nature. Before you ascribe it to Jesus, let's see what the passage is saying about fallen human nature. Listen to it. This is the nature of sinful flesh. Those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. To set the mind on the flesh is death. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God... For it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Get that? Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Now let that roll around in your head for a, for a nanosecond, for as long as I'll let you. Roll it around. Do you see anything there that you see in Jesus? Do you see Jesus not pleasing God? Do you see Jesus not submitting to God's law? Or not being able to submit to God's law? Do you see him hostile to God? Do you see him preoccupied with the sins of the flesh? Well you don't know Jesus if you, if you say yes to any of those questions. Jesus, Jesus of the gospel is not characterized by these things. In fact Jesus tells us the law of God is good. That it's perfect, that it has no deficiency in itself. And this passage believes the same thing. But it says there is a problem, and that is the medium with which the law has to work. The law has been laid down, but the people who have to meet the law, to obey the law, do what the law says, are weakened. They're not able to do it because of the flesh, because of the sinful nature. Our sinful nature renders the law weak because of our inherent opposition to offer willing obedience to the law of God. Jesus contradicts everything that's said about the flesh right here. Because in his human life he offers willing obedience to God. Now look at the contrast. What has God done about this state of opposition to the will and word of God that we see all around us in our own hearts as well as in society? By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. Who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. What did Jesus assume? He assumed human nature. Human nature is the same whether it's fallen human nature or unfallen human nature. It works the same way. Your brain works the same way. Your blood vessels work the same way. Everything works the same way. When we're glorified, the saints in glory, though they're perfected and glorified, they're still human beings. Jesus was tempted in every way we are, but he was not tempted by anything in himself. There was nothing the devil could get a foothold on within Jesus. He gets something he can put, get a foothold on in your heart and in my heart. As James tells us, each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire, by his own desire. Well, Jesus' human nature then was an unfallen human nature. That's why the word likewise is in there, uh, or uh, likeness is there, to make a distinction. He's human, but he's not able to sin. And this is the universal view of the church, the Eastern Church. For example, Cyril says, though he clothed himself, as they say, in Adam, he was not, as Adam was, of the earth, earthy, but was celestial from heaven, and so incomparably superior to that which is earthy. In the Western Church, Augustine, for there was, uh, b- there was born not a nature corrupted by the contagion of transgression but the one and only remedy for corruption and transgression. Or Leo, in his tome, puts it like this. Nature it was that was taken by the Lord from his mother. Nature, not defect. When we confess Jesus to be born of the Virgin Mary, may we mean one thing, and Leo teaches us how to understand it. The Holy Spirit made the virgin bring forth. But it was a real baby taken from her body. He was the holy thing in her womb. And he was born without sin. Well, I've got got to close this sermon at some point. uh, And that's the challenge. The human nature of Jesus and the human obedience of Jesus, as Thomas White puts it, is essential for our redemption from the aftermath of our first parents' disobedience. Because the hypostatic union of God and man is real and God the Son has assumed human nature for our salvation, then, let me read this, God the Son must also think with the human intellect make human choices freely in and through his historical existence, his life experiences. But just because those reflective decisions are the decisions of the person, those of the Son of God, they are also therefore expressive of that person. They are instrumental for making manifest to us in and through time who that person is. Jesus lived his life with the sanctifying grace of the Holy Spirit. He came in our human nature for sin. He came for sin. It's almost sin needs to be afraid, be very afraid. He's come to get you, sin. He came to deal with sin. The entire power of sin. To make a sin offering. What this word is used of a sin offering in the Septuagint, the, the Greek version of the Old Testament. He offered a sin offering to bring us to God. And ultimately he would crush Satan. He will vanquish the powers of darkness. He brought down the righteous judgment of God on sin upon himself. In his own sinless flesh. On behalf of his people. The writer of the Hebrews sums it up. Christ having offered. Been offered once to bear the sins of many. Will appear a second time. Not to deal with sin, but to save those who are waiting eagerly for him. Let's pray. Lord, we pray that today we'd find our confidence in a Savior who was tested, who was uh, afflicted, but endured. And now he reigns in the power of an endless life. Our impeccable Lord, he who knew no sin, who could do no sin, who came to deal with sin, that we might have eternal life. Thanks be to God. Amen.